This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The case book is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello everybody and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is part 9 and in this lecture we'll be talking about preclusion. The term preclusion is an umbrella for the related series of doctrines that deal with deciding when a court will bar litigation of a claim or issue because that claim or issue has already been decided in a previous action. This entire area of the law comes to us from common law decisions. It is not treated in the federal rules of civil procedure. Working with the common law decisions in preclusion is made more difficult because terminology in the area is not uniform. Courts and commentators can and do disagree, for example, on the meaning of res judicata. The majority use the term to apply only to preclusion of entire claims. But the restatement second of judgments uses it more broadly to apply also to preclusion of issues. Beyond these disagreements, some courts simply misuse the terms. Accordingly, our first order of business is to explain the meaning of the many terms in this area as they are used in this lecture. To avoid this dispute over the scope of res judicata, we will use terms of clear meaning, that is, claim preclusion and issue preclusion. Claim preclusion bars claims. Issue preclusion bars issues. Both require two lawsuits. Neither applies to a direct attack on a judgment in the same proceeding. A judgment in the first lawsuit is asserted to preclude all or part of the second lawsuit. Preclusion does not operate within a single lawsuit. A motion to vacate a judgment cannot be defeated by application of preclusion. Claim preclusion, or what most courts and commentators would call res judicata, provides that a final valid judgment on the merits will prevent parties and those in privity with them from relitigating the entire claim. That is, all issues that were or should have been litigated in a second action. Typically, a plaintiff will have split the claim, asserting only part of it in the first suit. The plaintiff may bring a second suit on 
an additional theory of recovery or for additional damages. Even though never litigated, these additional theories or damages are precluded. Should the plaintiff have won the first suit, the additional matters are sometimes said to have merged into the first judgment. Should the plaintiff have lost the first suit, the additional matters might have been said to be barred by the first judgment. Some might therefore refer to claim preclusion as merger and bar. Issue preclusion, or what many would call collateral estoppel, provides that a final valid judgment on the merits will prevent parties and those in privity with them from relitigating an issue that was actually litigated and necessary to the prior judgment should that same issue arise in a different claim. For example, A sues B for negligence. A receives a judgment after trial. B then sues A for negligence in the same incident. B will be precluded from relitigating the issue of her negligence. Both of these doctrines will be developed in more detail. Now moving to claim preclusion. Claim preclusion provides that a final valid judgment on the merits prevents relitigation of the entire claim, including all matters that were or should have been litigated by the same parties plus others in privity with them. The constituent elements of claim preclusion are the following. 1. A final valid judgment on the merits. 2. The same parties plus others in privity with them. And 3. The entire claim, including all matters that were or should have been litigated. We'll briefly examine each of these three elements in turn. The final valid judgment on the merits. All courts agree that claim preclusion requires a final, valid judgment. To be valid, a judgment must have been reached by a court with proper subject matter and personal jurisdiction. The judgment is valid when the court had jurisdiction, even though the result of the case may be thought erroneous. To be final, the court must have completed all steps in the adjudication, short of execution. Consequently, a judgment is final for preclusion purposes, even though it remains unexecuted. More importantly, most courts hold a judgment of a trial court final, even though the losing party takes an appeal. And same parties and others in privity. A judgment will not be preclusive unless the parties in the second suit are identical to or are in privity with the parties in the first suit. Any stranger to the first litigation cannot be bound by it. Two suits with different parties may qualify for issue preclusion, but not for claim preclusion. Little difficulty is presented in determining whether the same parties are involved. Somewhat more difficulty is presented in determining privity. The answer historically has been that people were in privity only when they acquire the same interest that had been litigated in the first suit. That is, the person was a successor in interest to a party. 
typically the person might obtain the interest by inheritance or by assignment. Over the years, courts have extended the concept of privity into other areas. A person who actually controlled the first suit is in privity with a party, as when an insurance company provides the defense for a policyholder who is the named party. Privity will be found between legal representatives and the people they represent, such as guardian and ward, trustee and beneficiary, and the like. Commercial relationships may also support a finding of privity, such as employer and employee. Some commentators even go so far as to say that privity has been so expansively interpreted that it now has become only a verbal symbol for any type of relationship that a court will use to bind a non-party to a judgment. One must keep in mind that, even though expanded over the years, privity remains narrow. Persons similarly situated or of like interests with parties are not in privity with them. All instances of persons in privity involve a legal relationship. And third, same claim barred, including all issues that were or should have been litigated. The preclusive effect covers the entire claim, including not only issues that were litigated, but also all issues that should have been litigated. A plaintiff who sues on only one of two available theories of recovery will be precluded from later proceeding on the other theory. The preclusion might be called merger or bar, depending on whether plaintiff won or lost the first action. The same can be said for a plaintiff who seeks damages in the first action and sues again for additional damages in a second action. Even though plaintiff legitimately discovers additional unanticipated damages, he will be precluded. Now moving to issue preclusion. While claim preclusion covers the entire claim, issue preclusion prevents relitigation of an individual issue. Issue preclusion provides that a final valid judgment prevents the same parties plus others in privity with them from relitigation in another claim of issues actually litigated and necessarily decided by that judgment unless unfairness would result. Quote, when an issue of fact or law is actually litigated and determined by a valid and final judgment, and the determination is essential to the judgment, the determination is conclusive in a subsequent action between the parties, whether on the same or a different claim. End quote. This is from the Restatement Second of Judgments, Section 27. The constituent elements of issue preclusion or collateral estoppel are the following. 1. A final valid judgment. 2. The same parties plus others in privity with them. 3. An identical issue in the new claim. 4. The issue was actually litigated. 5. The issue was necessary to the judgment. and 6. No unfairness would result. We briefly examine each of these six elements in turn. The first element, final valid judgment on the merits. As with claim preclusion, the first requirement for issue preclusion is a final valid judgment. The court must have had jurisdiction 
and the judgment must be final except for execution or appeal. And two, same parties and those in privity. Traditionally, issue preclusion has required the same parties or those in privity in both actions. This requirement was the same as claim preclusion. The reason a non-party cannot be bound by a judgment in which it did not participate is because this would violate due process. The reason is more difficult to discover when a party to the first action is to be bound by a non-party to the first action. Certainly the bound party had its day in court, so due process is not offended. What then prevents binding a party by a non-party to the first action? Historically, the doctrine of mutuality was thought to require the identical parties in both suits. The doctrine was based on fairness, that is, any party seeking to take advantage of a favorable result in the first case must have been at risk of an unfavorable result in the same case. Accordingly, when the first suit was between A and B, the second must also be between A and B. A second suit between A and C would not serve for issue preclusion. The doctrine of mutuality began to break down in the states in the early 1940s. Today, although some states cling to mutuality, most states and the federal courts have abandoned mutuality in favor of ruling that issue preclusion may bind a person who was a party to the first action, even though the opposing party in that action was different from the opposing party in the second action. The person to be precluded has had a day in court. Of course, due process still prevents a non-party to the first action from being bound. In a simple example, when the first action is between A and B, and the second action is between A and C, then A may be precluded in the second action. C, as a non-party to the first action, may not be bound. And three, different claim, identical issue. The claim must be different, otherwise claim preclusion would apply, since it covers issues that were or should have been litigated. A different claim with a common issue would be presented, for example, should a landlord sue on rent due for the month of October and proceed to judgment then bring a second action for rent for the month of November. Each month is a separate claim. In many situations, the issue will be identical without question. At other times, the court may decide that the issue is not identical despite its close similarity. For example, a decision on tax treatment in one year may not be the identical issue to tax treatment in another year. Circumstances may also change. The burden of proof may be different in the two actions. Of course, when the burden of proof is more favorable to the party to be stopped, the issue may be found identical. When a defendant is convicted of murdering a relative in a criminal proceeding, that judgment can be used to collaterally stop the same person as plaintiff beneficiary in a suit against the insurance company for the proceeds of a policy on the life of the deceased. Note in this example, there is no mutuality of the parties, yet defensive collateral estoppel would be applied. And four, issue must have been actually litigated. 
Collateral estoppel will apply only to an issue that actually was litigated in the first action. That means, by definition, dispositions such as default judgments, consent judgments, and voluntary dismissals cannot qualify for collateral estoppel. Similarly, issues that may appear in the final judgment, but which were not the subject of contest in the action, will not support collateral estoppel. Should a defendant admit an issue in the answer, or even fail to contest it at trial, the issue would not have been litigated. On the other hand, a judgment by summary judgment or by judgment as a matter of law may qualify for collateral estoppel should the motion have been contested. When an issue was not actually litigated, the policy of finality of judgments will be outweighed by the policies of fairness and decision on the merits. A party may not litigate an issue in the first action for various reasons, including one, small amount in controversy, two, inconvenient forum, or three, poor timing for the litigation. Whether an issue was litigated may be difficult to determine. The decision may require looking at the record of the first action, Should the record be unclear, the court will probably find the issue was not litigated. This situation would arise often when the first action was determined by a general verdict. For example, A sued B for breach of contract, and the defense pleaded was a denial and also a release. The general verdict was for B, the defendant. Was only the breach litigated, or was only the affirmative defense litigated, or were both litigated. Extrinsic evidence may provide the answer, but extrinsic evidence cannot contradict the record. And five, necessity. Collateral estoppel will not be applied unless the decision on the issue in the first action was necessary, that is, essential to the result. For example, A sues B for negligence and B pleads contributory negligence. The judgment is for B on a finding of no negligence. A further finding of contributory negligence against A is not necessary to the result and accordingly is not preclusive. This requirement is rooted in fairness, which is that a party should be stopped only on essential issues from the first action because the party may not have had a full effort on non-essential issues. Further, the court may not have considered such non-essential issues as closely as it did the necessary issues, and no appellate review was likely pursued. And six, fairness. When all of the five above tests for collateral estoppel are met, the court may still refuse to apply the doctrine should the result appear to be unfair because of an inadequate opportunity or incentive to obtain a full and fair adjudication in the initial action. Some examples of situations in which a court has refused issue preclusion because of unfairness include inadequate representation in the first action, small amount in controversy in the first action, apparent compromise by the jury in the first action, and unforeseeability of additional actions. Interestingly, one assertion of unfairness might be that collaterally stopping a party in a second action 
would deprive it of the right to jury trial. And finally, some exceptions to preclusion. Situations exist in which the elements of one of the preclusion doctrines fit, yet the court will refuse to apply the doctrine. While we do not develop these situations in any depth, as they are beyond the scope of this lecture, they include when preclusion would defeat a strong governmental policy, when preclusion was waived by a party in the first action, when the law has changed in the interim, and when the jurisdictional limitations of the first court prevented the full claim from being litigated. This is especially true when both the federal courts and the state courts are involved. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.